Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. Uh, a shorter week this week because of the bank holiday, so just four posts to talk about. The first um, is the one in our Power Shift series. We've got this project at the moment trying to, sh to, to give more space to the opinions and the views and writers from developing countries. And, um, you know, it's an unusual uh, uh, project in that I have to write less and other people have to write more. On Monday, we had a great piece from three uh, African women, uh, Orapaleng uh, Ramala, Wangiwa Kamonje and Jesu, Jesu Tofunmi Odugbemi, and apologies if I pronounced them wrong. Um, and, it's, and the title is There Is No Africa in African Studies, which certainly got people's attention. Uh, it was a letter originally published on the wonderful Africa is a Country blog. Uh, do check that out if you haven't looked at it before. And the three women spent a year in London at, at University College, uh, yeah, a very prestigious university. Um, and they found themselves basically studying African studies almost entirely through the gaze of white Europeans. What Europeans thought of Africa, what Europeans wrote about Africa. And they felt very disturbed by this, understandably. On one module, 87% of the key texts were uh, written by white authors. The same goes for journals, academic journals. I have to say, I'm pretty sure the same uh, would go for the London School of Economics, the LSE, where I teach. Um, and they are, and they sort of after making the case, they then say, well, what needs to happen? And they think because of the exclusion of African voices from academia, a real African studies course has to look elsewhere. It has to look at non-academic voices like musicians, artists, um, religious uh, groups, farmers, other forms of knowledge as well. Um, and it's really a great call to arms for students in African studies uh, to push back against this extraordinary whiteness of, of, of African studies. So I thought it was a great piece and exactly the kind of thing we're trying to give a platform to in the, in, in, in the Power Shifts project. Uh, the next blog was... Um, in the summer, I tend to have um, uh, yeah, some spare time and other people do. So people come and have chats, you have lunch, have a cup of coffee, and we chat about things. Um, recently, Miriam Wells, who's this, uh, the new impact editor of the Bureau for Investigative Journalism, uh, came over for lunch in Brixton. And, um, we just, and her, her job is to try and make the BIJ more effective in bringing about change. So she'd read How Change Happens and she wanted to th think. First, she pointed out there's almost nothing about the media in the book, which is kind of embarrassing, as I used to be a really rubbish journalist. Um, but also, she said she wanted to talk about that. So, okay, so how does this particular kind of journalism, which is investigative journalism, bring about change in a more sort of intentional way? Um, and the BIJ has some great hits, you know, it's won prizes for its um, work on, for example, the reasons for the rise of antibiotic resistance. Um, and everybody can cite some massive victories for investigative journalism in changing policy on things like the thalidomide scandal back in, I think, in the 60s, Edward Snowden. But the day-to-day -day work of investigative journalism doesn't get this kind of big headline treatment. So how can it be more effective in bringing about change, even if it doesn't become a national story to the same extent? And actually what I realized as we were talking was that it's really the, the arguments and the suggestions are very similar to those for how do academics have more impact with their research? So 
In terms of the suggestions, things like, you know, journalists are very good at critical moments. That's when the, an issue is in the news. They could play an even bigger role in rapidly turning around existing knowledge and research uh, into news stories to fit a particular moment, say, you know, the Amazon fires. Um, but they could also convene people who are a bit more sluggish about responding to news stories. They could bring together the academics, the NGOs, the think tanks and say, OK, we've got a big issue here. You know, how do we get this into the public domain better? They're also very good at constructing narratives, you know, these big um, overall um, stories which really appeal to people's hearts. I think the NGOs and the academics tend to put too, far too much emphasis, in a way, on appealing to people's brains, lots of statistics, lots of graphs. And journalists are better at just telling a story which moves people. So I think that two, those two you know, windows of opportunity, critical moments and narratives could be uh, two niches for something like the BIJ. But they also face similar challenges. You know, if you want to get impact uh, with a story, the best thing to do is engage the people you're trying to influence early on. So you, if you're trying to influence a certain government official or a politician, you try and interview them, you try and get them involved in some way early on so that they then take notice of the work when it's published. Um, but that kind of engagement can potentially damage your credibility. You know, if you're trying to say we're journalists, we're objective, and yet you clearly have an agenda for change, then um, you may damage your reputation. So it's a, a, a careful balancing act, I think, for both academics and uh, journalists. Finally, journalists have this kind of uh, image of Woodward and Bernstein from, uh, from Watergate, of kind of heroic, in, you know, um, people trawling through the papers, um, you know, in dandruffy tweed jackets through the night kind of thing and eventually finding the story. That's a terribly egocentric view in, in terms of it's all about them. And so I did challenge this, uh, challenge Miriam on this and say, so how about when the journalism will have more impact if somebody other than the journalist takes it into the public domain, a, 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 a messenger you're thinking about the messenger more than the message. The messenger who will have credibility, who will influence the target organization, the target department, whatever it is. Thinking about that rather than thinking about making your career and winning a Pulitzer. Or at the other end of the scale, how about participatory journalism? How about getting people to write their own stories? And the, the BIJ does actually have a really interesting program of local citizen journalism, which is quite a thing. So I think they're already onto that. But there, there are different ways to do this than to have the heroic investigator uh, model. Then the rest of the week, I, a few weeks ago, um, somebody um, came on the blog and said, why don't you write about climate change anymore? What's the matter with you? And, and the reason was, I didn't quite know how to approach it, but I get very frustrated with the lack of political analysis. The climate, writing about climate change tends to be um, what one Australian uh, critic of NGOs called bad shit, facty, facty, you know, Amazon fires, fact, 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 do something. And the bit that I'm interested in is the do something bit. But then when, the, when you get to the do something bit, there's often a, a, an absence of politics, a vague appeal to political will, which I hate, or people basically saying, I have this theory, I, I know how to do this. Just let, you know, just do what I say. I, if I ruled the world, we would have a perfect solution. And because of all the work I've been thinking about change and, and politics and how change happens, I find that very unsatisfying. So to respond to the criticism, I went back to a friend of mine, Matthew Lockwood, who 
has a fantastic blog which he's currently reviving called Political Climate, which is exactly on this topic. What do we learn from the from political science that could inform what's going on about the response to the climate crisis? Um, and we we went up to uh, my allotment up on, uh, near near where I live on a lovely summer's evening, and we had a beer and we chatted about um, the politics of climate change. Uh, it's a 25-minute podcast, so feel free to listen. And um, if there's any birders amongst you, see if you can hear the green woodpecker in the background. I was very excited when I heard that when I was listening to the tape. Um, Matthew was basically talking about, is this current wave of worry and protest and action around the climate crisis different from the last big upsurge of interest in, uh, on climate stuff, which was in the mid-2000s, how does it differ and will it have a different impact? Um, the obvious difference is that this is a much more bottom-up affair. In the mid-2000s, you had leadership from scientific advisors, leadership from governments, leadership from scientists, and they were kind of out there advocating change. We had the agreement of the Climate uh, Change Act in the UK in 2008. Um, this time, it's very much going against the tide of politics. There's a big push from the Extinction Rebellion movement, the school strikes. So that's different. Bottom-up movements tend to be better at some things and not so good at other things. They're better at shifting public opinion. They may be better at getting shifts in norms and underlying attitudes. But they're not so good at translating that into political decisions on spending or on policies or on laws. For that, you need leaders to come in, um, you know, just politicians and decision makers to get on board. Uh, the risk is if you don't do that, you sort of go the way of Occupy, where you raise an issue like inequality, but it doesn't translate into very much, certainly not for a long time. And we don't have that much time on climate change. So Matthew um, brought in some of his political science thinking about this, looking at things like the issue attention cycle, where... You know, nothing stays in the public attention forever. There's always a cycle whereby if it makes a big noise, then politicians respond, and then a large part of the public say, okay, that's been fixed, responded to, and move on to something else. So where are we in that cycle? And then we had another chat about the, the, the two likely responses, or the two current responses which you hear in terms of what to do. One is the sort of degrowth movement, and the one is the technical, technological solutions um, um, approach, and we talked about the merits of, of those two. I got very engaged with that conversation and actually ended up doing an interview with a, a journalist the next week from a new slow news uh, publication called Tortoise. Very nice. Tortoise, hair, get it? Um, and they wanted to talk about the politics of climate change and what's the likely outcome of this 2018-2019 moment. So I took Matthew's thinking a bit further there and applied some of the sort of um, analytical framework I use for exploring episodes of change to look at the, what's going on with the current uh, uh, climate change moment. And I looked at context, institutions, agents, and events. Um, it's all there on the blog if you want to see what those mean, but uh, and sort of look at the strengths and weaknesses of, of what's going on under those four headings. The thing that really, two things came up uh, for me. One is the absence of political leadership, and, and the, that is a real problem. You know, it's no good just saying that people can move mountains because we need political leadership. And at the moment, as far as I can see, the commanding heights of politics is all opposed. So that's a real issue. I don't know what to do about it. it it's, gonna be, it's not going to be a quick answer. The other one was I, I started thinking about 
something which has been nagging away at me, which is this question of the death of deference. You know, if you go back 30, 40 years, people, I think the public in general, were willing to suspend disbelief, were willing to trust their leaders, were willing to trust experts, and basically were willing to, yeah, they would have a vote every four years, but in between they would say, okay, they know what they're doing, let's let them get on with it. Now, there's a real question about whether that's a reasonable assumption. They quite clearly don't know what they're doing often, and a level of accountability is essential and, and not just at election time. So I used to think the death of deference, the fact that that deference, uh, that willingness to just trust leaders um, eroding was a good thing. But actually, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to change my mind a bit about it now because what's, what's gone into the vacuum where deference used to be is not very pleasant. You've got populists stepping in, just telling people what they want to want to hear and then doing something totally different and whipping up rage and othering groups in society and using a whole bunch of other methods to win power, none of which are, as far as I can see, preferable to paternalism, actually, in terms of what they achieve. Um, but also that death of deference now applies to science. And uh, yeah, a million years ago, I studied physics and I, I do have the sense that science can uncover something closer to the truth. Uh, probably never the complete truth, but something closer to it. That has gone in a large part of the public who now basically, I think there's a, there's a widespread sense that a story or a personal experience is just as valid as a, as a five-year piece of experimental science. Um, you know, the, it was cold yesterday, so I don't believe in climate change. And that sort of relativism for me is, is deeply worrying and, and is, a, is a major block to actually getting progress on climate change. So these are random musings about climate change. I'm pretty gloomy about it. Um, when I said this to one of our uh, internal climate change people, he said, look, you've got to let me respond. I'm far more optimistic than you. Uh, so Tim Gore will be writing about this next week. And I think we've got some other pieces as well. So that's enough from me. Uh, have a good weekend, everybody. Enjoy what's left of the summer if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, talk next week. Bye.